You're listening to the Happy People Podcast with Nye Armstrong. Today's guest is Dr. Farhan Abdulaziz. He is an ER doctor here in Dallas, Texas. I've known him for, I think, almost 10 years. He took time out of his busy schedule to come talk to us about COVID-19, what we can do to protect ourselves, and how we can do the most to help our hospitals and people in the medical field. For Without further ado, let us please welcome Dr. Farhan Abdulaziz. Let's connect with happy people, diving deep on everything. Happy people with Nye Armstrong. Yes, hi, Cole. So, um, uh, I, uh, I'm an ER doc uh, here in Dallas, so I'm working in the ER uh, seeing these patients as they come in from the beginning, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> now, how has sort of your job changed throughout this whole pandemic? So, well, so, since it started. I guess in terms of, in terms of uh, workflow, mm-hmm. we've, you know, constantly updating. It seems like every day there's new guidelines and how we're handling the situation. Um, and a lot of it really is like bracing ourselves for what's coming because we haven't, you know, Dallas isn't like a hotspot. Um, inshallah, it doesn't become a hotspot, but it, um, it's not one yet. We're seeing a lot of, you know, or relatively a lot of sick uh, cases, mm-hmm. but um, not like the surge levels that are in New York or Michigan or L.A. or New Orleans or that kind of thing. Chicago is also getting bad. Um, but in terms of our workflow itself, it's, it's different. Um, we've split our ER now into sections that are, you know, possibly COVID-19 related complaints. And then sections that are not. Um, and it's getting more challenging as the time goes on because we're learning that COVID-19 can pre- present with so many different symptoms, um, which yeah. does, makes that more of a challenge. It's like, what was it? I was reading an article, like they were saying it came out like digestive issues or something. Yes. And then um, other symptoms, uh, like a honking cough, right? Was that one of yep. them? It could like be... a chest pain in your yep. lungs. Yep. I had um, my friend's cousin had it, and she said the chest pain was unbearable. Like the the pain in her lungs was just intense. You um, know, I, I was just talking to one of my friends. He's an ER doc in LA, and he he was saying about just roughly like about seventy five percent of the people who he saw who had COVID nineteen had chest pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are the other symptoms that people can keep an eye out for? So symptoms, um, so they can vary all over the place. Um, It could be, obviously, people probably heard that you can be asymptomatic and not have any symptoms at all um, and still have the virus. Um, uh, Donovan Mitchell, the NBA basketball player from Utah Jazz, uh, was um, one of the first guys to test positive, like from like the, you know, celebrity, you know, uh, pool, pool, yeah, thank you. And um, he's had he has still hasn't had any symptoms, <laughs> and it's been wow. like almost two weeks or two and a half weeks. Um, so he may get through the whole thing with actually just testing positive but never having any symptoms at all. Um, so that's one extreme. Then and then you can get um, you know cough, congestion, fatigue, sore throat, so upper respiratory type stuff. Um, one of the things that came out recently in the literature is um, they're seeing a relationship with loss of smell um, and subsequently oh. loss of taste because uh, taste does, I mean, smell does affect taste. Um, they've 
I've read some papers that like three days before, you know, other symptoms manifest, people have had loss of smell as their only presenting symptom. Um, and then, then the, the stuff that's more common, um, cough, shortness of breath, fever. Uh, and then now, like you mentioned, GI symptoms, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, stomach cramps. And then we've also seen chest pain, as you wow. alluded to, and back pain as a complaint as well. Oh, my gosh. This is like it's a litany. Yeah, and it makes it so challenging, you know, because these, those are complaints that people come with all the time to the hospital. So how do you know who's COVID and who's not? Yeah, and it's like we don't have uh, ready access to testing. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. you just have to sort of treat. So like on Sunday, last Sunday, I wrote, I had a low-grade fever. So I'm okay. treating myself like I have it. <laughs> But I have no other, like, I have no, like, I don't feel horrible or anything. But I'm like, all right, this is how I'm interacting with the world. I've got it. Don't want to spread it. Like, that's how I'm treating my life right now. And honestly, that, that's that's the 100%, I think, appropriate approach to take. Um, you know, with flu season, and we're still kind of at the tail end of flu season, so we are seeing flu positive cases still, which, and again, allergies. makes it complicated. Allergies, yep, as well. Um, but during the, the kind of peak flu season, what we do is we, 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 we mostly don't test patients for the flu. If they have symptoms of the flu, we tell them you have the flu. And we're, there's a discussion now that we're eventually going to get to that point with, with COVID-19 and, and patients who come in with, with, you know, any of these symptoms, <laughs> we're going to tell them you got to presume you have COVID-19. Um, I mean, that's, that's really what you, ha- it's, it's the, like, I literally was just talking to my friend who had a double lung transplant six years ago and we're like this is just how you have to go through life or else like you can't be selfish you have to be selfless in these situations and curb your behavior because it's for the greater good yeah what safety precautions do you take while at work so uh it's always evolving (laughs) um uh and i think part of the evolution is isn't necessarily science-based, but also resource-based. Um, Gosh, that's sad. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if you're working the respiratory pod, which is like the possible COVID-19 pod, um, then what we're doing is um, for any patient that we're seeing, we should be wearing a gown, um, a face mask, uh, eye protection of some sort, so either a goggles or face shield and gloves. Um and then on the non-respiratory side, they're not necessarily recommending those things, but, you know, you, they're, they're still maybe minus the gown, but we're still doing like, like I worked last night in the non-respiratory side and I was wearing, you know, a uh, hair cover, face yeah. shield and mask and gloves on every patient I saw. Yeah. Um, and then if we're doing any more advanced procedure where we're putting ourselves at higher risk, we're like bringing out some of the aerosolized particles from a patient. So either breathing treatments or putting if somebody needs to go on a ventilator, those kind of things, then we need to get in the full like spacesuit stuff that you see or the hazmat suits, you know, that you see with Ebola or like, you know, maybe pictures you've seen online, that kind of thing. Wow. That's, yeah. That's intense. Just sort of like for my own curiosity, how is your mental health throughout this? Like it has to be slightly traumatic, if not full-on traumatic. <laughs> Somebody was telling me that other day. You have to take care of your mental health. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, alhamdulillah, I, I, I think um, 
overall it's it, it's good and the the spirit in the in the in the hospital also like among staff is is overall pretty positive i mean I think people are nervous um because we're on the front lines and there's been studies that 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 kind of point to um healthcare workers being at higher risk uh, not so much just just because of exposure, but because of repetitive exposure. So you're, you're, let's say you get exposed to multiple people again and again, your viral load increases to a point that it just overwhelms you, and you just and you get super sick super fast. Um, oh, is that why we're seeing like people that are like the that nurse in New York area, like how it just went quickly and then he like he passed away. Went downhill. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's the part of the thought is that just. Uh, um, increased exposure um, multiple times, so people are nervous. Um, but also, I think I mean this is what we do, you know. Like the, we, um, being in the ER, it's it's a uh, you know we got to be ready for anything that walks through the door. Um, so there's also a certain level of of uh, ex- I don't want to say excitement per se, but like like I personally feel like when I go to work, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm I'm kind of ready. Like, okay, let's whatever we have to do, let's do it. Um, yeah. So I- it's 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 kind of a mix of emotions, I think. Um, what what made you go into to become an ER doctor? Like, what was the impetus there? Um, so I didn't. I wasn't sure. Uh, uh, I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so as a medical student, what you do is you go through um, uh, different rotations every month. You do different, you know, specialties. So I I was kind of searching. I wasn't sure what I want to do until I did an ER rotation towards the end of my third year of medical school. And then that's when I realized I really like it. Um, and I think the reason why is uh, from one side of things, it's shift work based. So like right now I'm off work and so I'm not going to get called in. Well, theoretically, I guess if things go bad with COVID-19 here in Dallas, I might be on call. Who knows? Um, but in general, we don't take calls. It's a shift, it's a shift to work based uh, system. Um, so it gives you flexibility in terms of like work outside of work, mm-hmm. you know, life outside of work, um, family and that kind of thing, uh, activism and whatnot. So that's one part. And then and then the work itself, I, I, I do enjoy not having, you know, like a, a, every day being different, you know, yeah. um, seeing different people. And then also I, I, I personally enjoy critical care and taking care of the really sick patients. So we get we get a taste of that in the ER, obviously. So I think all that procedures um, that I enjoy, I enjoy the work and enjoy the lifestyle. Yeah, because you you go on Hudge trips as the I guess the resident doctor for the trip. Right? Yes, I started that doing that in the last couple of years. Fascinating, like yeah. your, your posts on that. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who knows? It'd be like an ER doctor, like you. It'd be like a regular rotation for you, but I'm uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what you were saying? Your precautions at work, like your full face mask, your hair, your hair cover, eye protection. Um, your whole gloves, gown. Yeah, gown, gloves. Yep. What precautions do you take to before coming home? Because I know your wife. You're you're coming home. Do you ever fear of bringing that stuff back to we? Oh yeah, the house? I do. Um, it's a conversation we've had, my wife and I, and also I've had with other doctors. What are they doing? Mm-hmm. Um, it is a concern. Uh, what we, what I'm doing now is, um, so I go to work. So instead of wearing my scrubs I usually wear from home, I'm going to work in my regular clothes, and I go there. And then the hospitals made scrubs available for us there. So we, I change at work into hospital scrubs, um, and then you know do my shift. And then before I leave, 
I change back into my clothes, leave the hospital scrubs in the in the for the laundry at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am leaving my my I have a pair of shoes I'm leaving at work only. Um, so then I come home. I'm not wearing any of the things that I was wearing at work itself. And then when I come home, uh, I take a shower. Uh, right. So that's kind of uh, my my workflow now. You know, leaving some people I know they're they like ER doctors who are who have like isolated themselves from their family. So there's they're staying they come home but they're staying in a separparate room. Um, yeah, I've heard that yeah, I've I've read a story on that. That's that has yeah. to be very difficult. Yeah. Do you think eventually that would be something that you would facilitate? Uh, I think definitely a possibility. Um, I mean obviously we're we we've we're seeing positive cases now, but it's it's a it's it's not like overwhelming or not like those surge levels in other places. Right. If we get to those surge levels, yeah, I think we have to maybe reassess kind of what we're doing. Now you said your colleagues and you are sort of trying to stay upbeat and positive. What is it like at the hospital now that you have the ER separated in two zones, one for COVID symptoms? And then ones for sort of like maybe like stitches or trauma or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. What else? What else has changed in the hospital? Um, honestly, not, not much beyond that. I think it's it's tricky because, you know, I'm just reading posts from other docs and, and articles and whatnot, and and you know, I'm reading stuff that's saying like everybody who comes in, if it's, it's the trauma patient from a car accident, or if it's the heart attack, you know, or it's a stroke they could have COVID too, you know, so <laughs> treat everybody the same as if they do. Um, so it's, it's, it, I guess it's challenging, but also I think we're just all trying to take our precautions with everybody, um, what, regardless of your symptoms, just because um, we've had many cases of, of positive, uh, positive cases without the symptoms that, that we would look for, you know? Right. And I saw like uh, you did the crash cart, the sugar crash cart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very cute idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the nurses from upstairs, they, they brought it down. Um, as I, saw it like on, a... I saw it on NBC too. They were, they were reporting about the nurses doing that for you guys too. I was like, oh, that's really Oh, really? Cool. Oh, yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. They made oh, the cool. news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, is, so you're saying like it's not here right now is not a hot spot. So it's not as bad as sort of the general, like, the bigger population areas but can you see it sort of um oh, continuing okay. we're already we're already preparing for that yeah like all the things we're doing now is all in preparation for what we're afraid of is happening in detroit and you know new orleans and la happening here new york obviously your personal protection stuff ppes right that's what you yep. guys call them yeah equipment is that what the e stands for uh yep okay uh, are we running low down here in Dallas? I'm sure everybody's scarce. We are, yep. Is there anything that we can do to help the hospitals here with that kind of thing? Um, so I think the challenging thing is that it's we're running low because it's not on the market, <laughs> you know? Right. So even those who have it, so there's one, one well, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but uh, I guess what I can say is there are people who are trying to donate masks, yeah. Um, uh, I think it has to go through some official, you know, system through the hospital to make sure it's it's it meets standards or whatever. Yeah, because um, it has to be what N95 or yeah, gotcha. Yeah, um, or better, I guess. Um, yeah. But 
so I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know. Like from from that side, in terms of like supplies, it's so challenging because unless if somebody has access, you know, from their profession or what they do uh, for for these supplies, I think it's hard to get it to people um, or get it to clinics and hospitals that need it. Yeah. Well, as sort of like civilians in this situation, what can we do to help? Um, our medical personnel that are dealing with this on the so-called front lines? Um, so I, I, I think that it's twofold. One is is a lot of the measures that, you know, this, the county of Dallas has put in place uh, and we're seeing across the nation in terms of, you know, social distancing and staying at home unless you really have to go out and washing your hands frequently. All those things I think are, are super important. Um, the whole idea of flattening the curve you know that 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 curve is is getting close to passing capacity in in Detroit right now and in LA right now and New York has probably already passed it. Um, so <clears throat> the idea is if we can keep ourselves where we are right now, where we're getting a trickle of, of really sick patients from COVID nineteen in instead of um, these these big surges of patients, then we'll be able to handle it. Um, like I was sharing in another podcast or another webinar that you know in the last week and a half or so i've i've intubated three patients um uh, intubate means like when you put a breathing tube into their trachea and, and basically take over the breathing for the patient and put them on a, a on a ventilator on life support um and all three of them weren't COVID 19 patients you know one was a heart attack one was a person who was constantly seizing and one was um a brain bleed and so those those cases are still coming in you know that's not stopping because of COVID 19 um and so ventilators you know we're, we're worried will become scarce um or will run out out. Um, these are discussions that are happening in New York right now and Detroit right now. And hospital systems across the U.S., really, they're already making, um, you know, having discussion about what do we do when, when, not if, but when we get to that situation. And are we going to tell patients that if your heart stops, you will, you will automatically be made a DNR? You know, things that we are hearing about in Italy of wow. like 60 years old and over not getting a ventilator. We're not talking about that here yet, but what we are talking about is if you're on a ventilator and your heart stops, normally we would, you know, jump right in and do chest compressions and give medication to try and get you back. Discussions are happening right now in the USA about automatically refusing that to people um, just, just because of risk to healthcare personnel and uh, low survival rate and, um, you know, just amount of resources going into those patients when there's other patients who need those resources. Um so I think that's one, th- one side of things is definitely just taking those things seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and even if you're young, like I think there, there is this idea that if you're young and healthy and fit and whatever, that you're immune to this. And that's, that, you know, that's not true. We're seeing, you know, I'm just hearing cases, young guys um, who are healthy, who are fit, fitness instructors, you know, army, um, like, you know, you know, um, they've served in the army. They, you know, these guys are, you know, top of the line in terms of their fitness level and they are on ventilators, you know? So it's not something that just because you're young, you're safe from, you're 30 years old or people in their twenties. Um, I had a patient, a patient in his twenties. I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily physically fit, but he didn't have any medical problems. Um, 26 years old. And then he's, um, he's on life support and then kind of, not 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 uh, you know we have to transfer them out for even advanced care that we can't even offer at our hospital so it's 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 challenging and i think people need to take it seriously and all those recommendations and uh, should be followed mm-hmm. it's it cannot be understated that gotcha. if you are if you are not like really sick 
don't go to the hospital. Um, number one, you're putting yourself at risk because if you don't have it, you might get it there because um, other people who are sick who are in the hospital. Uh, and two, you're, you're potentially overwhelming, you know, or not you're exposing. Let's say you do have COVID-19, but you're very mild, you know, and you don't need to come to the hospital. You can stay home and just nurse yourself like you do a common cold, but you expose a healthcare worker and they get it. You know, and then they're out for 14 days or they're out for however long it takes for them to get better. Then as one person we're down, it's more stress to the system. Um, so I think it's really, really important for people to understand that, you know, there was a movement that, you know, like a, like a social media movement that there were, there were, you know, doctors and medical professionals and nurses and techs were, were posting, like, we stay here for you, so stay home for us. Mm-hmm. Um, these messages. And I think that's that's so true. Um, now, how do you know when you're really sick? <laughs> That's a question that, that people need to ask. Like, because I feel terrible, I feel horrible, I have no energy, I'm sleeping, you know, all those things. Um, and I, I think the, the the advice I would give is 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 two things. One, if you can't breathe, obviously, then you need to come. Um, or if your pain is just so severe, you know, the chest pain that you're referring to earlier, that's just so severe that, you know, there's something, there's something off, you need to get checked out, then you would come into the hospital. Um, and the third thing I would say that, you know, typically, um, especially parents with their kids, what they do is, you know, they have thermometers and if they check in their kids' fever is a certain number and whatever number that is in their mind that there is alarm for them and maybe not necessarily rooted in science, but let's say somebody has a fever of 104, like, okay, that's super sick, I gotta go to the hospital. And it's not necessarily true, but but the point being, there's, there's, a, there's an idea of, of uh, fever equals sick. Um, and I think for, for COVID-19, we need a little, uh, it's, you know, the, for COVID-19, the thermometer of COVID-19 is what's called a pulse oximeter. Um, checking your oxygen saturation. Um, they're available at, at um, medical supply stores. Um, some CVS and Walgreens carry them as well. And Amazon, you can get it. It's like about 20, 25 bucks. And what it is is a similar little device you put on your finger and it tells you your oxygen level and tells you your heart rate. Um, so you just put it on your finger and it, 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 it takes a couple seconds to calibrate. So don't freak out if you see it low in the beginning. And also for, for a woman, if you have nail polish on, it could block the reading. Um, but so I would say if you're really worried about it, take off the nail polish if you have nail polish and then check. Um, and if you're, I would say if you're, if you're healthy and don't have any history of lung disease, if you are above 92% on your oxygen saturation, you're, you're probably okay to stay at home. Mm-hmm. Definitely if you're above 90, 95 or higher, 94 or higher, um, if you're 92 or lower, then I would say definitely come to the hospital. If you have a history of lung disease, maybe COPD, um, or you're a smoker, emphysema, then your oxygen level typically already runs a little lower. And so for them, if they're above 88, we're okay with. Um, so I would say if, you're, if, you're, if you feel like you're sick, you got a cough, you got shortness of breath, or you got a fever, body aches, fatigue, stay at home. Isolate yourself. Don't expose yourself to other people who might also get sick from you. And if you can... Um, check your pulse ox and if it's above 92 just keep nursing yourself at home if you get sick or or either severe shortness of breath or chest pain or your oxygen levels dropping then then come into the hospital